an ancient prophet is called to leave Jerusalem with his family, and his sons set up dividing lines, which will define their people for a thousand years. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This is our first lesson in the, in the scriptural text of the Book of Mormon, and it's covering 1 Nephi chapters 1 through 7. Uh, we get our curriculum from the Come Follow Me manual of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Should you have a question about the content of today's lesson or the scriptures thereof, please email me at gt at gospeldoctrine.com. And please, if you like the podcast, spread the word by giving us a five-star rating on Facebook or on the podcast app on your iPhone, or give us a review, or simply tell a friend. All right, the first book of Nephi. Now, interestingly enough, uh, you may not know this, but the, the verse numbers, the Book of Mormon didn't come separated into chapters and verses. The chapter divisions were early on. The verse divisions were introduced later in the 1800s, after the death, well after the death of Joseph Smith by Parley P. Pratt. And right here at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, it's not part of any chapter. It's simply the introduction to the Book of Nephi. It's called, uh, so if you, if you go to the first page, it says the first Book of Nephi. And then before ch- the words chapter 1, uh, you actually see a paragraph there. The fact that it's not in italics tells you that this is part of the ancient record, and it was translated by Joseph Smith. Uh, so just an interesting side note. So let's begin a chapter-by-chapter analysis, or at least a reaction, to the first seven chapters of the Book of Mormon. Now this is everything up from the calling of Lehi as a prophet to uh, the right before the the vision of the tree of life that Lehi had. So everything that happens up until that point. Now Nephi talks about, he, right away he talks about the fact that uh, he's making a record in the language of his father. So when, oh, let's, let's go back one verse. The very first line is, I Nephi having been born of goodly parents. Now you may remember that at the time of Joseph Smith, this word goodly, you may have been taught this before, But goodly didn't mean my parents were good people. It didn't mean that they were going to give me a a foundation in the spiritual matters. What it meant was my parents were well off. And therefore, uh, he says, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. In other words, my parents could afford to educate me. So a lot of times uh, in in modern parlance uh, among members of the church, you'll have them say, you'll hear somebody say, I was born of goodly parents, meaning that my parents raised me right. They raised me in the church. Uh, And that that has come to be the modern meaning. That is what people understand when those words are said. And I'm not saying you should correct those people, but uh, the actual meaning of the scripture is that that Nephi was born, his father was a wealthy man, or at least uh, above average in wealth, and therefore Nephi had an education he could write. And he could write in more than one language, apparently, because as he says in the second verse, uh, I I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. Now, um, in actual uh, fact, in actual practice, what that might mean is the opposite. The 
the language of the Jews and the learning of the Egyptians, because what uh, Moroni wrote at the end of the Book of Mormon was that he called he called the language that they wrote with the Reformed Egyptian, and that's in Moroni or uh, sorry Mormon chapter nine. He says uh, we've written this record according to our knowledge, uh, the characters that are called among us Reformed Egyptian. And so if our plates had been sufficiently large, we should have written in Hebrew. So what is, the implication is that somehow, and Hebrew is already a very, very compact written language, somehow the, the Egyptian letters with which they wrote the Hebrew language, or perhaps uh, some different language uh, that was similar to Hebrew, somehow those Egyptian letters were mo even more compact than Hebrew written with the Hebrew script. And uh, so... Uh, that means that it could be written very small and a lot of content could be put onto these plates. And that is important because the Book of Mormon is quite long to be engraved character by character. And uh, whether Nephi began that, began writing in the Reformed Egyptian at the very beginning, or whether he was using the, the actual language of the Egyptians is not 100% clear. It's, it's an interesting question, and there are some, uh, there's some dates, debates about that online that you can find if you're interested in that. So Nephi is a learned person as well, is basically what he's saying. In verse 4, Nephi says, In the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, his father was called as a prophet. In other, or there were a lot of prophets that were prophesying that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and then his father also was called as a prophet. He describes how his, brother, his father receives that prophetic calling. So uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about what was going on in Jerusalem at this time. Now, for centuries, the Assyrians had dominated this part of the world. In fact, the Assyrians had carried away the northern kingdom of Israel about 100 years prior, roughly. And at that time, you may remember this story. Uh, they arrived as far as the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, they had destroyed the other cities of Judah. They just didn't destroy Jerusalem, which is where the military power was centralized. And they arrived, the Assyrians laid siege to Jerus the city of Jerusalem, and Isaiah promised the people that they wouldn't be conquered. In fact, that they wouldn't even launch one arrow against them. And the, in the morning, the Israelites woke up, and the Assyrians had been uh, routed in the middle of the night. So it was a miraculous salvation of the city of uh, Jerusalem at that time, during the time of Isaiah. But the Babylonians were a rising power, and they were giving problems to the Assyrians. The Assyrians had an alliance with Egypt. Now, if you have a map, you will notice that Israel is right in the middle of where these three uh, world powers were, were located. So they were destined to be a battleground, kind of like Germany in Europe. The wars were fought in Germany for centuries and centuries, and the people there just could never, the, the common peasant just could never have... Uh, any lasting, any sort of lasting peace because there were so many different powers battling over the territory there, not just Germany, but the, the countries surrounding it. it was, Europe was just a battleground of empires that had their, their headquarters elsewhere. They didn't want to battle on their home turf. Well, Jerusalem was similar to that. So as the power of Babylon increased, they gave battle to the Assyrians, started to conquer them, and Jeremiah warned the leaders of Jerusalem, don't entangle yourselves with foreign alliances, especially with Egypt, because Egypt and Assyria were allied against Babylon. And, and uh, Jeremiah said, don't do it. 
the kings did it anyway. It didn't turn out well for them. So 605 BC was the first time that Babylon arrived in, uh, in Jerusalem, laid siege to it. In order to avoid being destroyed, the king at that time agreed to pay tribute to Babylon. So for uh, about five or six years, paid tribute to the king of Babylon, but then decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to once again throw in our lot with Egypt. We're going to stop paying tribute to Babylon, and then Egypt will protect us. Well, Egypt had other things on its mind when Babylon came calling. So the first time that uh, the, you, what you might call the elites of Jerusalem were carried away was in 605 B.C., so the, uh, the tribute was paid not only in money, but also in young people. And uh, a lot of scholars believe that's when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're called, were carried away into Babylon. And that's why they were raised there. That's why they were young people there. That's why they have the story of refusing to eat the king's meat, etc. So uh, 605 BC, Daniel would have been already in Babylon, but he was carried away from Jerusalem. Then in 590 9 or 598 BC, so seven years later, that's when Babylon showed back up and they said, all right, you haven't been paying us the tribute. This time we're actually going to conquer you. And they won a military victory, but they did not, they did not take the extra step of destroying and looting the city. And so therefore, they put uh, in place a puppet ruler, King Zedekiah. And their understanding was that Zedekiah wasn't going to listen to these Jews who wanted independence. Zedekiah, even though he was a descendant of David, he was going to be loyal to the Babylonians and he was going to actually send the tribute that, that uh, the nation of Israel now was beholden to send. So that is the first year of the reign of the king of Zedekiah. Now, 10 years, 11 years later is when they finally came back and actually destroyed the city. 587 or 586 B BC is the historically agreed upon time when Jerusalem was really destroyed. That's an interest. So this is just interesting stuff. The, the Babylonians carried away three different groups of Jews to Babylon. And eventually the largest population of Jews, though they left some Jews in Jerusalem and in Israel, the largest population of Jews after that point was in Babylon for hundreds of years. And this, so in the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah was 597, 598 BC. Later on, uh, Nephi gets the revelation that, that Christ would come 600 years from the time that his father left Jerusalem. And so the, the Book of Mormon calls that 600 BC. Now, that might be an exact number. It might be within a year or two. It might be within four or five years because uh, the birth of Christ is also a contested date. Uh, scholars do not think, very few actually believe that Christ was born in year 1 AD. They believe that he was born, some of them, 4 BC, some of them later. So uh, in any case, the, it's within a couple of years of 600 years before Christ. And it's within 10 or 11 years from the time that Jerusalem would actually be destroyed by the Babylonians. But they already have Jerusalem already has sort of a vassal relationship with Babylon, which means that they're paying them tribute, and they know that Babylon is the is the 800-pound gorilla in the uh, in the ancient Near East, and therefore they better they better be obedient to Babylon. But a lot, much like 
the the Jews at the time of Christ were chafing at Roman rule. They want Babylon uh, out of their affairs, and Jews are. It's very unpopular. the The choices that King Zedekiah makes uh, to defer to the to the rule of Babylon are very unpo- unpopular choices. the The Jews actually believe that because they're the people of God, no matter how wicked they get, you, if you want to understand the time of Lehi, just read the book of Jeremiah. They thought, no matter how wicked we get, we have the temple here. We're the people of God. Jehovah will fight our battles as he has in the past. And Jeremiah uh, was given to know early on in his ministry that people would not listen to him, that they were going to be destroyed. He, he It's probably the, one of the saddest prophets you can imagine because he knew the entire time he was he was prophesying for decades and he knew the whole time that he wouldn't be heeded but he had to keep going he's so faithful and this is the context into which lehi is thrown it's a fascinating fascinating tie-in with the old testament so much of what is uh going on in the early part of the book of mormon is clarified by by reading by having a good understanding of this time period during the the Old Testament time. So if you want to know more, go back a couple of years, a year and a half, to when we were talking about the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. Uh, these are the prophets that were prophesying during this time, and this was the culture that they were thrown into. One of the one of the really identifiable mark marks of a prophet of this time was what is called a throne theophany, which is a vision of God in, in sitting on his throne in heaven, surrounded by angels in the attitude of praising God. Uh, and Lehi has this, it's almost pitch perfect, that, uh, that vision that Lehi has. Now, the first vision that Lehi has is of a pir- pillar of fire. And when he sees this pillar of fire, uh, in verse 6, 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 6, He's walking along and praying unto God as he goes, and a pillar of fire is is on top. It's dwelling, as it says, on a rock before him. The pillar of fire is a symbol from the Exodus, and what it was was a, a shield. The, the people of Egypt were actually shielded behind by a pillar of fire so that the Egyptians couldn't catch them before they could get through the Red Sea. They were led by a, by a pillar of fire, so it was a shield and it was a guide. And at night, it would be a pillar of fire. During the day, a pillar of cloud. This is a symbol. This is an Exodus symbol. This is an Israelite symbol. So the fact that a pillar of fire comes and dwells on a rock before him would show Lehi that the God of Moses, or the God of Abraham, was there to speak. We don't have an account of this vision. Nephi later lets us know that in his own account, what what would be known today as the book of Lehi, had the manuscript survived, uh, in that account is given a more complete description of the visions of Lehi. But unfortunately, that account, though translated by Joseph Smith, never made its way into the Book of Mormon. Um, And I'm sure we'll discuss at some point uh, what exactly happened to those. But Joseph Smith had those in his possession. He let them go out of his possession, and they never returned. And so we, don't, we today do not have the book of Lehi. We, we would have, we can presume, 
we would have had a more complete knowledge of what Lehi saw on this occasion and in some of the visions that we'll hear about later. But now all we have is a cursory description of them. So the next thing that happens is Lehi goes home and he and he's overcome in the spirit and then he has uh, a vision. He he's overcome in the spirit and he, uh, we can assume that he oh it says actually he lies on his bed. Now I want to talk a little bit before we go into this next vision. I want to talk a little bit about what it means to hear the voice of God in the Book of Mormon. And I've been thinking about this in a broader context as well. Um, I, I, I might have talked about it when we taught the lesson about Abraham and Isaac, Abraham having to sacrifice his son. And it always, I always wondered, uh, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, but how did he do it? Did God actually appear to Abraham? What kind of proof would Abraham have required from God to know that God, this is actually you talking to me, and uh, and therefore I'm willing to obey even to the taking of my only son's life, uh, or or my only son of the covenant's life. A lot of times I hear people say, "Yeah, God told me to do that," and what they really mean is I felt a very strong impression, or I I really felt like it was God. And, you know, I didn't hear a physical voice. I didn't see anyone. And it, it's, it always strikes me how much faith these prophets must have had that they had really heard the voice of God. And I, I've always wondered, how could they be so sure? And Lehi, he, uh, he is about to sacrifice everything. And what he hears from God actually comes to him while he's on his bed. So we can assume that he could wake up and he could say to himself, you know, that might have been God. But it might have also been a dream. And uh, so not being a prophet, I just, I don't know how clear it was to him the difference between a vision from God and a dream that he could ignore. And if there was any doubt, how could he have been willing to sacrifice everything? Uh, I, I hope one day I'll have the opportunity to know the difference. But right now I'm just left to think. Uh, I My mouth drops a little bit when I think about the faith it must have taken on the basis of a dream alone to leave everything behind and to travel an entire, um, to travel several continents over and found a new civilization. None of us would be capable of doing that today. It would be uh, impossible. Even given modern technology, it would be impossible for anyone to do today, just as impossible as it was then without the help of God. So, the vision that he sees when he's thus overcome with the Spirit. Now, this vision is right in line with the vision of Isaiah that we have uh, evidence of in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, the voice of God that Jeremiah hears in Jeremiah chapter 1. The, the vision that Ezekiel sees of the throne of God approaching him across the river in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. And then later on, uh, Lehi is given a charge similar to the charge that uh, Lehi, or I'm sorry, that Isaiah is given. Isaiah's charge is given to talk to this people and make the heart of this people fat. Um, in Ezekiel chapter three, Ezekiel is actually given a book to eat, and in Revelation chapter ten, John is given a book to eat. And in this, so the the prophets are symbolically given their missions. And Lehi has to actually read a book. And so he reads a book, and it's probably the book of things that will happen to Jerusalem if they don't repent. And it makes him uh, praise God, and it also makes him very sad. 
So for me, this is one of the first proofs of the Book of Mormon right here in chapter one. Uh, the idea of a throne theophany was not a, a scriptural theory that was well understood at the time of Joseph Smith, and yet he has got it dead to rights. He has actually absolutely nailed the the way that a prophet, the time of Lehi, would have been called, is exactly how his calling came about. From receiving his mission to seeing the angels of God surrounding him on his throne in the attitude of praise. Uh, so moving on to chapter 2, uh, Lehi, we don't know how immediately this happened, but he leaves behind uh, a homestead, a property of great wealth, and they make their journey into the wilderness. Now where did they go? They're alongside the Red Sea, and as a kid I always thought that meant they were on the Sinai Peninsula, but actually uh, it was more likely that they were on the east side of the Red Sea, so on the west coast of present-day Saudi Arabia and then possibly making their way over the next several years down to the south coast in present to, of, of Saudi Arabia or uh, south coast of present-day Yemen, and perhaps launching their boat from there, and then navigating their way all, all the way across the Indian and Pacific Oceans to uh, South America, presumably. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the course that Nephi and Lehi and their family will take. Uh, as as this story progresses. For now, all they've done is go as far as the Red Sea. If you've ever traveled in this area, this is at least a three, it, it's anywhere from three days to a week's journey on foot from Jerusalem to get to the Red Sea. So it's not like they can just pop back and forth, but it's also not like they're out of the reach of the powers in Jerusalem. Possibly not to track them that far away, but if they knew where they were, they could send out uh, an armed strike force uh, to bring them back or to kill them if they wanted to. And that comes into play in just a little bit. So Lehi has been commanded to depart into the wilderness, and this is the wilderness where they arrive. Now, the one of the things, uh, here's another interesting thing. They, they camp by a river of water. Now, uh, rivers are generally understood to have water in them, but in this part of the world, there were two kinds of rivers. There was a river that flew se that flowed seasonally and that flowed uh, constantly. So a river of water was one that had water in it all the time. And that is a Hebraism, or uh, you, you might call it a Hebraism, but it uh, more accurately could be said that it's, it's a, an artifact from a Semitic language. So Hebrew, Aramaic, Jerusalem, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Arabic, those languages would have these idioms in them where it wasn't just a river, but it was a river of water, or it was a dry river. And in this particular case, it seems redundant in English. It's actually not. Uh, the next thing is, so uh, Lemuel is compared to a valley. Uh, Lehi, his father, says to Lemuel in verse 10 of First Nephi chapter 2, Lemuel, oh, that thou mightest be likened to this valley firm and steadfast, immovable in keeping the commandments of the Lord. So he's trying to motivate his, his uh, rebellious sons to be more obedient, and he asks one of them to be firm and steadfast and immovable as a valley. Again, this is something that is an artifact from a Semitic language to say that a valley is immovable rather than a mountain. That, that would be the kind of thing that you or I would think is immovable and, and firm and steadfast. But this is very much in line with the way 
that uh, Hebrew people spoke and thought and wrote. Now, right away, we have the first of many examples of Laman and Lemuel's uh, rebellions against the visions of Lehi. What's interesting is that Laman and Lemuel are constantly griping and complaining and rebelling against what they perceive as uh, perhaps tyranny on the part of their father and later on their younger brother in the name of God. They don't, they don't share the same spiritual witness as Lehi, the same spiritual witness as Nephi. And therefore, what they were saying is, uh, you know, we're, we're angry that you've taken us away from Jerusalem. But what they don't seem to have the courage to do is just say, you know what, Dad, uh, we're not coming. We're, you know, thanks for letting us know about your vision, but we're not going to go. So they, they're actually, it says here in verse 13, they were likened to the Jews who were at Jerusalem, who sought to take away the life of my father. Laman and Lemuel would rather try to kill their dad than simply ignore him. And once again, this was in line with the culture of that time. You could not, you could not stand up to your father. You, you had to, your house had to stay united. You could not simply make a break. Now, Obviously, if they knew their father was leaving Jerusalem forever, they could have gone back and given whatever story they wanted. But they don't seem to have had this sort of backbone. Laman and Lemuel, one of their defining characteristics is that they're cowards. Um, And a lot of people like to say, you know, in their lessons in Sunday school, that they can see a lot of themselves in Laman and Lemuel. It's not totally unreasonable that Laman and Lemuel would have made the decisions they made. Sure, in some cases, that's a little bit true. But it's also true that right away they're talking about taking away the life of their father. So they're, they're, they're much worse than most people. They're, they're very cowardly, and uh, we don't know exactly how Lehi, such a holy man, screwed up so bad, but uh, you know God did the same thing. He had, a, he had Satan for a child, and so uh, there's no accounting for the differences in generations. But Laman and Lemuel weren't just average bad. They were, they were quite rebellious and quite cowardly quite fast. So Nephi has his, instead of reacting the way that Laman and Lemuel do, he has his own experience with the visions of his father, and he has a confirming vision. He actually has a a witness, a visitation by God. And Sam, his brother, is willing to accept that witness, but Laman and Lemuel are not. This is uh, at the end of 1 Nephi chapter 2, is where Nephi is first given the covenant that will define the people of the Book of Mormon. So in verse 20, we read, Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper, and shall be led to a land of promise. Now later on, when they're in the land of promise, uh, this this covenant changes. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. Uh, In the next verse, Inasmuch as thy brethren shall rebel, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. So later on, that will change too. And inasmuch as ye keep not my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. So this is very much uh, a definition of what the covenant of the Book of Mormon, the covenant of God with the Book of Mormon people is, is inasmuch as ye keep my commandments, ye'll prosper in the land. Now later on, Nephi is taught that this land that he will be given, the land of promise, is one in which God will have his people be obedient. And so for some reason, God's, God sees the land that he's going to give to Nephi a little differently than he sees any other place. And there are a lot of places that are that God has 
uh, specific purposes for. Israel comes to mind first, but also we have the Isles of the Sea that God talks about a lot, that he will have the people of the Isles of the Sea visited by the Spirit, visited by Jesus Christ, etc. So God has um, maybe a different plan for how to manage people in different parts of the wor world, and that I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be something that we would expect him to do. But this is God's plan for this people that will live in this place. Moving on to chapter 3, this is where we get that famous verse. Nephi is called upon, so they're, they're several days journey from Jerusalem, and, and Nephi is called upon to return to Jerusalem and retrieve the, the brass plates, this record that contains not only the scriptures, but genealogy. Um, and I want to read to you uh, when they, well, I'll read it to you when they get the plates, but the the vision, the direction to Lehi, again, it comes in a dream. He believes it. He tells it to Nephi. He believes it. And he says, go back to Jerusalem and get these. Now, Laman and Lemuel don't want to do it. Nephi says, I believe that when God gives me a commandment, he also gives me the ability to keep that commandment, even though it sounds difficult right now. This is a very important verse, and there's even been songs written about it. I will go. I will do the thing but the things the Lord commands. So we won't make much more of that because you, many of you know this verse perhaps even by heart. Uh, so we'll make, we'll make our points later on in the story. So the first thing they do is they travel. Now this, this is a fascinating story and it's one that gives a lot of people problems. Uh, so that's why we're going to talk a little bit about it. So they, the first thing they do, they go to the house of Laban. Laban says, uh, no, I don't want, they, they send Laman in, and Laman says, hey, are you willing to just simply give us this record? Um, Laban says, no, I don't want to do that. And he even says to Laban, or I'm sorry, Laban, who owns the brass plates, says to Laman, the brother of Nephi, no, not only am I not going to give you this record, but you are a robber for having come here to ask me for it, and therefore I'm going to have you killed. So Laman flees for his life. And their next plan is to get all of the valuables they left behind. They take those into Laban, and he's willing to receive them because they have uh, a lot of precious things with them. Uh, so they, they go back to their homestead, retrieve those, go back to Laban. Once he, once he lays his eyes on those precious things, well, he, he still doesn't intend to, intend to give up the records, but uh, he'll t he'll relieve. He's more than happy to relieve Nephi and his brothers of those precious things. Once again, he chases them out and sends men to kill them. At this point, Laman and Lemuel are totally willing to give up. In fact, they're so insistent on giving up that they start to beat Nephi. Again, the question I have is: rather than beat Nephi, why don't they just give up? Why don't they just stop and say, "Look, we're back here at Jerusalem now." <laughs> We're, we're staying. Nephi, go ahead. If you want to go get the plates, do it. We're staying, and we're not going to go get the plates, and we're not going back out into the wilderness. Instead of doing that, so this is the question that I repeatedly ask myself. Instead of just leaving Nephi alone, why, don't, why do Laman and Lemuel persist in forcing Nephi, trying to bend him to their will? This is one of the questions that for me, uh, it, it brings the entire Book of Mormon to life. It basically turns this family squabble into a struggle 
that has real spiritual meaning. They, in my opinion, Laman and Lemuel are a perfect proxy for Satan because Satan cannot simply leave the people who don't want to have anything to do with them alone. He has to continue to try to make everyone's life miserable. Now, later on, centuries later, generations later, when the Nephites and the, and the Lamanites are separate people, the, the claim of the Lamanites against the, against the Nephites is that you have usurped the righteous rule from us, from our forefathers, and therefore we have to make war on you. But if you read the actual history, what happened at the time that Nephi separated himself from, from Laman and Lemuel was, this time they had decided for sure that they were going to kill Nephi. Their father was dead. This is after the time of the death of Lehi. We're looking forward a little bit, but I'm giving you a little bit of foreshadowing. Actually, I'm giving you some genuine spoilers, but sue me. This is what happens in the Book of Mormon. So when Lehi dies, they actually make plans to kill Nephi, and that's when Nephi takes his people and runs away. And so Nephi basically, he just didn't want to be killed. And for centuries then, the people of Laman and Lemuel, they, they made war on the Nephites, for that reason, that you you stole, you usurped the righteous rule. You wanted to rule yourselves, but our forefathers had the right to rule over you, and they were going to kill you. So the, the complaint of the Lamanites against the Nephites boils down to this. You wouldn't let us kill you. Now, that makes absolutely no sense, and it makes all the sense in the world. In other words that nobody would ever submit to it, and yet you can see it around you all the time. Satan has exactly that rationale for everything he tempts us to do. The anger of Satan and the anger of the people that serve him is exactly that. You won't let us rule over you and make your lives worse, kill you spiritually, and therefore we have to make war on you. We will not let you be free to follow your conscience, to follow God. I see this everywhere in the world today. People of, who desire to believe in God and desire to follow him and desire to make a society in which it's easier to follow God are persecuted for that reason. You and the, and the accusation against them always boils down to you won't let us change your life for the worse and therefore we have to make war on your way of life. And this is where it begins. Laman and Lemuel Instead of just letting Nephi follow God and leaving him alone, they're beating him with a rod. This is when they have their first supernatural experience. A, a, an angel of God appears to them and rebukes them and says, stop beating your brother with a rod. And uh, okay, so they listen. And then immediately, <laughs> here's another lesson. Immediately after the angel disappearing, they say, oh, why, you know, what are we going to do now? So an angel has just testified to them that Laban will be delivered into their hands, and they are start questioning it as soon as he disappears. Now, there's an interesting moral dilemma that happens in the next chapter. In 1 Nephi chapter 4, uh, Nephi goes into Jerusalem by himself, and he comes across Laban in a drunken state. And being prompted by the Holy Ghost, as he says, the voice of God, he decides to kill Laban. So he, he decapitates him with his own sword and puts on his clothes and, and impersonates him. And by so doing, he gains possession of the brass plates. 
So this is a very, to me, a very difficult passage. And if you grew up in the church, you may not have a full appreciation for the kind of problems that this causes for somebody reading the Book of Mormon for the first time. I had a number of people on my mission that I taught who said, now wait a minute, Nephi is the prophet, right? Yes, he is. Uh, And he is an Israelite, right? Yes, he is. He believes the Ten Commandments, right? Yes, he does. Okay, one of the Ten Commandments is not to kill. And not to kill has its modifiers, right? It's actually the word is not to murder. And so, great. Thou shalt not murder, but if you're in battle, you can kill, etc. You can kill in self-defense. But by a modern standard, and this is this is important, but by a modern standard, uh, this wasn't battle, this wasn't self-defense, this was murder. If if you did this in today's world, you would be found, and the facts were known, they came to light, you would be found guilty of murder. And rightfully so. Uh, at this point, there didn't seem to be, we don't, we don't know all the facts, but there didn't seem to be any immediate danger to Lee, to Nephi and his brothers. They were outside of the city. And nevertheless, he killed Laban while he wasn't presenting any immediate threat. This, this gives a lot of people a problem. And I, and I have to admit, I don't have all the answers to it myself. I have my own problems with this passage because, uh, you know, unless we can make certain assumptions and, and explain it away, but unless those assumptions are true, this is a prob- problematic passage. Now, uh, God asked Abraham to kill his son Isaac. And at that time, there were no Ten Commandments, but it was still very, very well understood that you shouldn't kill uh, anyone. I mean, before, before the Ten Commandments, Cain killed Abel, and he was cursed because of it. Right? He suffered, if not physical death, he suffered spiritual death. Abraham knew it was wrong. And nevertheless, because God told him to do that, then he was willing to do it. Uh, here, I'd, I wonder again, what exactly, how powerful was the voice of God to override everything Nephi knew? The voice was telling him, in my opinion, now this is a modern opinion, again, and we'll go over what that means, why it's different. But this is a modern opinion. God is telling him to disobey one of the Ten Commandments. And I'm sure Nephi had to think, how can God tell me to disobey God? That doesn't make sense. Okay, why is it important that it's a modern, it, th- that this is a modern perspective? Um, because perhaps, now this is just an idea Perhaps one of the rationales for Nephi killing Laban was that it was self-defense or it was warfare. They, uh, first of all, we don't know what form this pursuit took. It may be that there were still soldiers at Laban's command out there actively hunting Nephi and his brothers. And therefore, killing Laban was the only way to save their own lives. Or at least they can perceive that killing Laban was an important way to save their own lives. By that, if that were the case, if those were the facts, and we don't know that they were, but if they were the facts, then it would be self-defense to kill Laban because they had committed no wrong. It wasn't because of a crime that they committed that Laban was trying to kill them. He was simply trying to kill them. And therefore, any advantage they could get over him, even if he's incapacitated at the time, would 
be in the furtherance of saving their own lives. And, and therefore, by a modern standard, uh, though, it, though it might be very controversial and they may even stand trial, they would probably be found not guilty, or I'm sorry, uh, Nephi would probably be found not guilty. Somebody in his position could very easily say this was self-defense. Now, it may also be the facts that, uh, that that wasn't happening. We don't know. But it seems like it was. It seems like these that Laban had sent men out to kill him on more than one occasion, and, and had they still been living in Jerusalem, they may have eventually faced death at the hands of one of Laban's soldiers. So that's one justification there, is self-defense. Another justification that I mentioned earlier is warfare. Now, warfare was seen quite differently during this time, and it could warfare didn't have to just happen between uh, warring states or kings. It could also happen between houses or families. And so one of the things that we know from uh, once Lehi gets the brass plates, we learn that he and Laban shared at least some ancestry. And so therefore they were related, perhaps closely, perhaps distantly. But if their, home, if their houses were related, that means there may have been disputes over property in the past. And if so, it may be that they were either feuding families or that, or that if they weren't, this certainly would have initiated a feud. And a feud... What we see as a feud today is something that is, you know, illegal. Two families fighting for generations because uh, they they have some grievance, and instead of taking their matters to the law, they take the law into their own hands. But at this time, a feud was very much something that happened. Uh, let's say it wasn't outside of the law to to prosecute a feud against uh, another family that. If you didn't take the law into your own hands, you would be killed by them. They would get you before you got them unless you were willing to defend yourself. And therefore, uh, the warfare justification perhaps would be present. It may be that, that Nephi saw himself at, as being a man at war. His house was at war with Laban's house. Neither of those would contradict or weaken the fact that he that neither of those is inconsistent with the fact that he was reluctant to kill Laban. So he may have felt like, he, he doesn't say, you know what, I'm not justified in killing Laban. God God prompted him to kill Laban, and Nephi shrinks back, right? He, he doesn't want to do it. But he doesn't say, I wasn't justified in killing Laban. God is telling me to do something that's wrong. What he says is, I've never shed the blood of man. This This act in itself is personally distasteful to me. Now that is true of anyone of uh, you know any sort of character at all who has to commit a justified killing. They they shrink at the act. The act is very distasteful to them, and uh, a lot of men suffer. A lot of warriors suffer PTSD for decades because they they despise the killing of the taking of life. And Nephi has that same reaction. Anyway. Uh, I think it's important to think about this question because if you, unless you grew up in the church, this comes up very quickly. And I believe God put this story right at the beginning of the Book of Mormon for a reason. It's because, and I, I don't know exactly what that reason is, but uh, one of the effects that we can observe is that people's faith is challenged in the book right away. They see that the hero of the story is is performing an act that 
he not only they but he himself finds personally distasteful and per, and is perhaps even criminal and that gives rise to a lot of questions a lot of difficult questions so that's my analysis on the question is that because nephi doesn't say well i'm committing an unjustified killing he says this is this act is by its nature distasteful to me then perhaps the killing was justified, at least in his view of the law and of the customs at the time. A lot of that is conjecture, but uh, I've done a lot of thinking about it, so that's my conjecture as of right now. In any case, Nephi obtains the plates by killing Laban and finds himself outside the city. The plates have been carried out there by one of uh, Laban's servants. Now, I always felt like, or I used to feel like, Zoram got the raw end of, it, of the deal here. Because um, when Nephi's brothers see him coming out dressed as Laban, they get afraid. They think, oh, this is Laban. They start to run. Nephi calls out to them, but then the servant hears, oh, this isn't really Laban after all. He's been impersonating Laban. And he starts to run. So Nephi calms his brothers down at the cost of uh, perhaps raising the alarm in Jerusalem. Now, they were afraid. Uh, and they even mentioned they were afraid that if the Israelites knew, they must have hated Lehi quite bad because the fear was that if the Israelites knew where they were, they would even send people out there to kill and they'd pursue them into the wilderness. So it was important that Zoram, the servant of Laban, not return to the city because if he spread the alarm, then perhaps there could be pursuit. So Nephi tackles him to the ground and extracts an oath from him that he will listen to their words. So then they tell him, Look, here's the deal with us. God called our father to be a prophet. The city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And Nephi makes him a strange promise. If you come down into the wilderness with us, then you will be a free man. You'll be like one of us. You'll be equal with us. The only way this would be an attractive promise to Zoram. So I always thought, well, yeah, but he could just go back into Jerusalem and be free. But lately I've realized, okay, so if that's the case, then the only way this would be an attractive promise to Zoram is if he were not already free. He's a slave. So Zoram is a slave. He was a slave of Laban, which is quite common. Slavery at that time took the form of what we might call today indentured servitude, and it lasted for seven years. So he can either remain up to seven years, depending on how much he'd already served, he can, even, he can either remain in the household of Laban for another few years, up to seven, in a house where he has just given away an important asset, these scriptures, to the person who murdered his master. So that's what he has look, to look forward to if he goes back into town. Or he can be a free man and go out into the wilderness with these guys who seem like they have a real plan and they know how to get things done, obviously. So... Zoram, perhaps moved on by the spirit, or perhaps simply making that same sort of uh, hard-nosed, pragmatic calculation, decides to, to accompany these young men out into the, back into the wilderness. Now, interesting about the oaths that they exchange with each other. Uh, they are threatening each other's lives. Nephi has captured late, uh, Zoram, and he says, by violence, and he says, uh, you know, if you listen to us, then we, you, you will not be harmed. And then he stops struggling. And then Zoram, he promises, yes, I'll come down into the wilderness with you. And he promises with an oath. And as soon as he promises that, they don't worry about him anymore. So if he had run, their lives were in danger. 
and if they had, and uh, I'm sorry, if Zoram had run, Nephi and his brothers' lives would be in danger. And if Nephi was breaking his oath, Zoram, Zoram's life would be in danger. They were willing to trust their lives to strangers on the strength of an oath. This tells you how important these oaths were. The oaths meant everything, and one would sooner die than break an oath of this nature. The oath took the form of, as the Lord liveth and as I live. Again, another important Hebraism that has found its way into the Book of Mormon. So they have this, the plates of brass, and this is when uh, they discover that Laban and, uh, well, maybe they didn't discover that Laban and Lehi were related, but they discover that their lineage is through the house of Joseph. They're the tribe of Joseph. And in chapter 5, we also learn that the records include, so they include uh, the five books of Moses, and they also include a record of the Jews from the beginning, even down to the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah. So that includes, presumably, uh, Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Now, it cannot have included First and Second Kings and Chronicles because, well, we don't know for sure, but it is believed that those books were written by Jeremiah, and uh, I can't remember if it's Ezekiel or Daniel. I believe it's Ezekiel who is presumed to have written uh, the Book of Chronicles. And so uh, those books had yet to be written. Nevertheless, the sources for those books did exist. Uh, the, bo the book of Kings was, was not far away from being written at this time, and the book of Chronicles would be written a little bit later. And the, but the sources that those two prophets would use um, were already in existence. Now, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, and the book of Mormon, they share... A certain characteristic, and that is this, that all of them were the compilation of a thousand years of history of the people of God by a prophet historian. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so when you read the book of First and Second Kings, which is really just a single scroll that had to be, or I'm sorry, a single book that had to be divided into two scrolls, and the book of Chronicles, which is kind of the same thing, but written from a Babylonian rather than a Jerusalem perspective, uh, you realize that this is the history of the the people of the descendants of the house of Israel, and it's sort of compiled. the The episodes are chosen for their illustration of of spiritual concepts. Miracles are highlighted, and the and the person who performed the work was the servant of God who took a bunch of historical sources and basically made a scriptural record out of them. So that's kind of fascinating. The Book of Mormon, uh, if Joseph Smith did make it up, then he understood exactly the tradition that it came in, which is the same tradition that the Book of Kings was written in. It was a tradition not understood at that time. One more interesting, uh, interesting fact that would need to be explained if the theory that Joseph Smith was the author rather than the translator of the Book of Mormon is to be accepted. You'd have to explain how Joseph Smith knew to do that and how he could be so good at it. He was as good at it or better than Jeremiah was at creating the Book of Kings. So go back and read First and Second Kings or at least skim through them and see how you think you would do at taking a bunch of historical sources and compiling that record and then 
uh, and then tr you know try to create something similar. In all the years since people have been disputing the veracity of the Book of Mormon, nobody has actually performed the challenge that 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 claim uh, makes obvious. And that is okay. If it's so easy, if a if a 21 year old man could do it with uh, just a few years of school, then if uh, you know if Joseph Smith was instead of being a prophet, if he was a charlatan, then compose a similar record yourself and make it as convincing and make it as able to stand up to scrutiny as the Book of Mormon. No, no one has yet taken that challenge, as far as I know, let alone succeeded in that challenge. There are so many intelligent people who have believed in the Book of Mormon, and all of them would have had to be duped by this uneducated backwoodsman. And uh, that seems to me to be, uh, to, to set the bar pretty high if you want to prove or uh, at least claim convincingly that Joseph Smith made this book up. And here's just one more example, is that here in the, uh, in, on the brass plates are these records up until this time. So they would have had the book of Isaiah, they would have had uh, maybe the book of Amos, some of the other prophets, and then aside from all the prophetic books that made their way into our scriptures, they have uh, some genealogical writings, and then they also uh, presumably had uh, a few other books Prophets of Zenic and Zenus are later mentioned, and they are they are prophets that specifically taught about Jesus Christ. And not only do those books not exist in our modern Bible, but no mention of them has been had anywhere other than the Book of Mormon. So those books have been lost to history. So those are the plates of brass, and uh, Lehi when he when he finds the genealogy. In the, in the plates of brass, he's inspired to make all kinds of prophecies. Now, then uh, in, in chapter 6, Nephi t takes note of this and he says, look, I'm not going to make a record of this on my small plates. These are called the plates of Nephi. The large plates were called the plates of Lehi. And again, though, that's the record that Joseph Smith translated and then lost. So the small plates, although they seem to have had a fair amount of information on them, uh, they were they were not even translated they or I'm sorry they weren't compiled and they weren't condensed by Mormon Mormon seems to have taken Nephi's record and just word for word transcribed it onto his own plates engraved exactly what Nephi wrote onto his own plates or at least or maybe even taken the leaves off of Nephi's plates and put them onto his own plates and only after those small plates were full did the did the abridgment work by Mormon begin? Uh, so that's that's sort of an explanation that occurs in First Nephi chapter six. Well, one notable verse in this chapter is verse five: "The things which are pleasing unto the world I do not write, but the things which are pleasing unto God and those who are not of the world." What this verse tells me is that I can use the Book of Mormon as a barometer to check where I am. If, if the things in the Book of Mormon are pleasing to me, then that means that I am not of the world. But if I can't stand to read my scriptures, then that means, you know, if it's, it's too boring to me, it just doesn't appeal to me, then that, that is a pretty good indication that uh, I am of the world. I'm t the world is too much in me that day. 
And so read First Nephi chapter 6, verse 5. It's an important verse to understand where you're at spiritually. The Book of Mormon can kind of help you to know that. Uh, First Nephi chapter 7. The children of Lehi are again commanded to go back to Jerusalem, but this time it's because obviously uh, these are all single men. They don't have any spouses. They're not going to last very long as a people if they're separated forever. Now, at this point, you ask yourself the question, or at least I ask myself the question, why didn't God just tell them to go to some other civilization and join themselves to it and live as outsiders, perhaps, but at least you know have a people to live among? Create another Jewish enclave within, perhaps, the, the Assyrian society, the Egyptian society, the Babylonian society, where they weren't conquered. And so it it's clear that that was what God's desire was to have a people that were entirely religious, that were entirely following the religion he had, he had revealed, starting with Abraham, and it codified in the five books of Moses. He wanted to have a people that were worshiping in this way without and had autonomy. And the only way he could do that was to lead them to a land that had not yet been settled. It seems like such an incredible task to found an entire people in a totally new place. And that's why the Book of Mormon is such an incredible record, is because it's the story of people doing something that is absolutely miraculous. So in order to found a civilization, they, they perhaps don't realize that's quite what they're doing. But when they go back to get women, it's obvious they're going to go colonize an entirely new place. So they go back to Jerusalem. This time, uh, nobody has to be convinced, by the way. Isn't that interesting? The first time, they had to be totally uh, roped in. Laman and Lemuel had to be roped into returning, and this time, uh, they're, they're all for it. However, on the way back, they, they realize they don't like what they're doing. They tie Nephi up. They're going to kill him. And at this point, uh, Nephi prays that his bonds will be loosed or that he'll have the strength to break, break them. When he prays that, they're immediately loosed from his hands. So he, it's interesting that his prayer isn't answered in exactly the way he wanted. He wanted the strength to break his bonds. And what happened was the bonds were just taken from his wrists. So often we're taught to do the exact opposite. We ask, we're, our, first, uh, our first instinct is to have the Lord just release us from our bonds and instead, we're taught, oh, but no, Lord, give me the strength to break them or to bear them, right? So it's just interesting. Uh, some lessons have their application in one way, and sometimes it's the opposite thing is the Lord's will. And so we just have to make sure that we're paying attention to the Spirit. In any case, once again, Laman and Lebuel have the option to stay in Jerusalem. They have the option to just leave Nephi alone and stop listening to him. They obviously have some of the sons of Ishmael that are listening to them now. They found, presumably, willing brides among the daughters of Ishmael. They can go off and live their lives, and they refuse to do it. They have to rule over Nephi. It's not enough that they could just leave him and not have him rule over them. This is a perfect description of the attitude of Satan, and I just wanted to drive that point home again one more time. So when you see that attitude in the world around you, you can know where it comes from and you can be sensitive to it and you can flee away from it. Now Laman and Lemuel are not yet past feeling. And so when it 
when it finally hits home to them what they were about to do, they beg Nephi for forgiveness. He forgives them, and he says, pray to the Lord for forgiveness. So they do. They're forgiven of their sins. This is interesting, right? They're willing to repent. And when they arrive, uh, one more thing I'll say about these chapters. When they arrive at the tent of Lehi in the wilderness, they make a sacrifice. Now, he doesn't say this explicitly, but first of all, Lehi, we know he's not of the tribe of Levi, so he has no priestly lineage. Presumably, he has no priesthood, period. And therefore, he would not have been allowed to perform a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. But out here in the wilderness, somehow, he's been given that that charge by God, we can hope, that God had told him, no, you can, you can perform the sacrifice. Now, whether this was because God had found a way to give him the priesthood before he left Jerusalem, or whether this was not a priesthood sacrifice, but simply uh, a, a burning of an animal that God accepted as real, we don't know. We aren't given to know that. But the, this would have been the purpose of a sacrifice at that time, would have been to be forgiven of a sin that you'd repented of. And so that's interesting. We find temple ordinances being performed the same way they were among the people, the children of Israel during the Exodus, which is outside of a tent and in the wilderness with an altar that they built themselves. So uh, Lehi has, as one of his very first acts, created a temple. In that, and we find the, the analogs to that in modern day uh, church history, that Joseph Smith very early on told the people uh, of the church that we have to build a temple. We have to give a place where God can overlap with the world of man. The world of God and the world of man need to have a place where they meet and they join. And we can arrive in God's house, worship him there, and receive forgiveness of our sins because uh, we need a more powerful way to gain access to God's grace. So hopefully, even in these few short chapters, I've given you some indication as to why the Book of Mormon is such a remarkable record and why so many, including myself, believe that it is a record of God's people, that it's an ancient record, that it was translated in our day by a modern prophet, and why it contains the words that will bring us closer to God than any other words. And that is my claim and my testimony to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.